Cool. Uh, my name is Trevor, by the way. I'm one of the pastors here at All of Life, and I get the privilege of teaching uh, what could be considered one of the most important texts in the New Testament scriptures. Jesus announcing, claiming for himself the title of the Christ. Now, if this is one of the most important New Testament scriptures, it's also one of the most debated New Testament scriptures by a bunch of guys reading textbooks arguing about what Greek words mean. Um, We're not going to get into all of that, but I'll give you a brief glimpse. Uh, My main point today is hit what I think is the main point of this passage. Um, Now, and it is that this, that Jesus is Christ. Now, I don't remember at one point in my life I had this realization. It was probably a little bit later into my adult years than I would have liked. But at some point, I realized that Christ wasn't Jesus' last name. Anybody resonate? <laughs> Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ, right? I got in, in my imagination, I'm thinking like Jesus in pre-K, like learning how to spell his name, right? Like Jesus Christ, right? Or going out to dinner, like, yes, Christ, party of three, Christ, Christ. So I, as silly as it is, I just thought that was his last name, Jesus Christ. So it shocked me at whatever point I realized this, um, that it is not a last name, it is a title. It is a title from Greek specifically that spans uh, the, the story of the scriptures, um, and it is t- talking, telling us about who Jesus is, what he's done, and the role he now has in the cosmos, as well as our lives as his followers. So here's our roadmap for today, what to expect for the next little bit of time. First thing I want to say is uh, I often like to go kind of linearly through passages. I think it opens them up most obviously. It, it's, it's not about me being smart. It's about like, hey, here's like top to bottom what's on the page. Today is going to be really hard to do that um, because it's this really intermix. You've got a set of ideas here and a set of ideas here, and they do this. And so if I kind of go top to bottom, it's going to jump around a lot. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to pull out some main themes, and I'm not going to spend a lot of time in the text. I'm going to have verses on the screen that you can do some of that homework, but I'm going to talk about the main ideas. Here's what they are. The first main idea is the Christ. I'm going to try to tee up, based on the Old Testament scriptures, what is the prophetic and historical need and anticipation of the Christ. That's going to be two big categories, the need for the Christ and the anticipation of the Christ, okay? Then I'm going to move into Jesus, the Christ, because Jesus had a new revelation as a new fulfillment of God's plan that kind of surprised everybody. So there was this Old Testament Christ need and anticipation. Jesus came and inflected that with his own personality and mission from God. Then we're going to look at Peter, the rock. Anyone catch that in this section? You are Peter, the rock. On this rock, I will build my church. We're going to talk about the partnership between God, the Christ, Peter, and the church. What does that all look like? And then we're going to end one more time on Jesus, the Christ. What does that one more time mean that Jesus is the Christ? I'm using the language that he is the ultimate, and I'm not using this like a, a razor blade Gillette commercial, right? Like the new men's five blade Gillette extreme superb ultimate, right? Like, I'm not just piling on a bunch of adjectives here. This is, I've chosen this word very specifically. This is the ultimate anointed atoning king. So that is our roadmap for today. Would you pray with me real fast? Father, as we get into this, um, would you just settle our hearts to enjoy your scriptures, uh, to help us see you and receive you in a more full way through the hard work of Matthew as an author and a follower of you, 
um, a man who lost his life by choosing to be faithful to you. Um, Would you make this relevant to us while also helping us stay true to the text as it's given to us? Amen. So this very first part, the Christ. Bear with me, it's gonna be the least uh, like uh, grounded in this passage because I'm going way, way back. It's really, really high level, okay? So bear with me, this is mostly some big ideas. So Matthew, remember, Matthew as a book was written to a Jewish audience, a Jewish audience who knew the Old Testament scriptures and it was for the purpose of revealing how Jesus fulfilled and matched those scriptures, even surpassed their anticipation from those scriptures. Now, up to this point, Matthew as an author has been teeing up Jesus as the Christ, as the fulfillment of the Old Testament anticipations. Matthew has been doing the work so far. If you uh, draw your attention all the way back to Matthew chapter 1, this is straight out of chapter 1, verse 17. He gives a lineage from the Old Testament and says this in conclusion. So, all the generations from Abraham to David, two important patriarchs, were 14 generations. Then, from David to the deportation of Babylon, an important historical act, 14 generations. And then, from the deportation of, to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. So notice, he's right off the bat saying, the Christ. He's drawing attention to the Christ. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. So right off the bat, Matthew is doing all the authorial work to say, this is the guy. Then over the next 15 chapters, Matthew's doing the work of saying, look at what Jesus did to display the ethic of the kingdom of God. Look at the way he was a teacher. Look at the way he did miracles. So Matthew's doing the work. Here, for the first time in the text, Jesus is claiming himself as Christ. Prior to this, Matthew's done it. Here, Jesus is explicitly pulling it and claiming it as part of his own identity. There's been hints through his words and actions for sure, but this is a new degree of clarity and intentionality. And what he's doing is he's pulling together three titles in this section. Can anyone shout out what those three titles are that you heard? You know, just say it. (laughs) Son of man. Who do you say the son of man is? That's a title. What other ones? There's two more. In this text, this text right here, son of God, right? Peter says, you are the Christ. That's the third one. I'll give that to you. It's a freebie. So there's three titles, the son of man. Who do you say the son of man is? Peter responds, you are the Christ, the son of God. Three titles. Now we're going to get to the son of man and the, um, the son of God later, but we're going to start with the Christ, okay? So the Christ literally translated means anointed one. It is someone that God has claimed and called to to be a bridge between heaven and earth. Someone that will play a special role in God's plan. He's been anointed. In the Old Testament, a lot of kings were anointed and they were called to be special bridges. They were meant to do the will of God on earth as it is in heaven with authority from God himself. So if we look at the Old Testament, uh, excuse me, the New Testament is in Greek. The Old Testament is in Hebrew. Uh, And so the New Testament, that word on the top, that actually is Christos. Now, if you guys uh, know our All of Life logo, what's the All of Life logo? X. I remember the very first time I drove into All of Life's parking lot in like 2016. I had to do a double take. I was like, wait, what's that thing with four lines? Um, If if you had the experience, you know. But uh, so it's the X, which comes from this, Christ, the Christos. It's the very first letter of Christos, so all of life. 
We are oriented around Christ. So that is Greek. It means the Christ, and it means the anointed one. Hebrew is a little bit different. It uh, is pronounced Mashiach. I know I'm butchering that, but it's Mashiach or Messiah also means anointed one. So when you hear the word Messiah or Christ, they are interchangeable parallels for the anointed one. And it was often used for other people besides Jesus, the Christ. But what we're going to look at here in the Old Testament is Israel had a string of anointed ones, a string of people who were anointed by God to do special things. But throughout all of the Old Testament scriptures, there was an ongoing like longing, something not quite right, some, some promises of a capital A anointed one, a special, someone that would surpass and supersede an ultimate anointed Christ Messiah that would come to bridge uh, this gap between God and mankind more fully than ever before. This person, this Christ, this Messiah would restore justice, would liberate the oppressed, would establish a new kingdom of Israel where God would reign over the hearts of men and women in a state like heaven on earth. Now there's an enormous amount of material we could go through if we wanted to draw on this. If you're familiar with the Old Testament, you're probably already starting to pull up some ideas of promises of God. But today, we're gonna keep it very, very simple. And we're gonna look at the very beginning of the story of humanity, okay? And then we're gonna glance off of Daniel chapter seven because that's where the title of Son of Man comes from. But we're gonna go all the way back to look at the Christ, the prophetic and historical need and anticipation, okay? Now, for clarity, when I say prophetic, I have a very specific meaning in in my mind. I mean a description of reality that's based on the wisdom and truth of God's perspective. In shorthand, by prophetic, I mean spiritually accurate. Not off, not misaligned, spiritually dead to rights. By historical, I mean connected to the true story of human beings on earth. I mean history. One one word, nonfiction. So the need for the Christ, I'm arguing, is prophetic, it is spiritually accurate, and it is non-fiction. So the Hebrew Bible starts out with a creation narrative. You guys familiar? Genesis 1, God created the heavens and the earth, and God goes on to make all sorts of things. And the, the poetry of this part of the Bible is meant to emphasize this, the creative power of God, as well as his generous investment in the created world. Now, in the creation narrative, in the story of the Garden of Eden, there's also a quite vague, but I would conclude super-duper compelling description of why humanity is beautiful and imperfect. It's vague, but compelling. So here's high-level overview. God has created the world out of an abundance of his love and generosity. He creates all of the material world, He then populates the cosmos and earth specifically with living, breathing creatures. Everything from microbes to bunny rabbits to moose to humans. All of this is out of his generosity. And then he chooses the humans specifically to have a special role in his creations. He says that he wants human beings to to image to the rest of creation his personhood. He makes men and women in God's image. That means is humanity is made to be special representations of God on earth, special embodiments of God's presence and God's goal in the world. He chooses to make them regents. 
sovereigns, co-rulers with him underneath his authority, ruling over the created world, which means simply they're responsible for its ongoing creativity and its care. And then notice this, it's through their own abundant love and generosity that they image God in the world, meaning God is seen through them through their love and generosity. So here's why this is all important. It explains why humanity is so amazing why we do such cool stuff and create artwork and have families and romance and love our children well. It explains all of that. It explains why we have dogs that we snuggle with. Now, the narrative of Genesis does more than just talk about the beauty of humanity and the potential for the human race. It also talks about and explains its calamities. So in addition to the plants and the animals and the humans in the garden and in the world is the snake. The snake in the garden. And this appears to be a unique snake that seems different from all the other reptiles that you would expect. Now, interestingly, the Bible does not say why there's a snake, what it is, or how it got there. But it is clear in this way. This snake is represented as a real spiritual evil personified. This is a real entity, and it is in rebellion to God. Genesis is also clear in explaining that this snake is a spiritual evil capable of influencing the minds and the hearts of human beings. It's really vague about a lot of things, but the two things it's really clear about is it's real, and it influences human beings to the point of persuading Eve and then Adam to doubt God and act in rebellion and disobedience to his will in the world. So if we accept Genesis as being prophetic, meaning spiritually accurate, and Genesis as being historical, meaning nonfiction, actually happened to human beings, then the world has two inescapable problems. We cannot argue or fix away. Two things that are problematic in the world. One, there is real spiritual evil. I don't totally get it, but it's there if we believe this. There is real spiritual evil that desires to and is capable of influencing you and others toward mistrust and rebellion in God. Two, human beings, all of us, have a heart susceptible to its influence, resulting in all the mistrust and unfaithful relationships we have with one another and God. The result of this inescapable reality is what we feel every day the ongoing buzz of fear and shame and greed and pride that lead us to hurt ourselves, hurt the people we care about, hurt our communities, hurt our enemies, and hurt God. Now, what does all of this have to do with Matthew 16? I'm pulling it back together. Here, Genesis is telling us why the Christ matters. If there was not a need, why would I care about the Christ? Genesis is giving us a severe and deep problem that needs to be solved. The presence of real evil and its influence in our lives. And Genesis also shows us the glory for which humanity was created and what restoration is for. or What it might look like. What is worth fighting for. What needs to be fought and what is being fought for. Genesis 3 gives us also the promise of someone who will come and fight. It doesn't have the language of the Christ or the Messiah yet, but there is a promise. This is Genesis chapter 3, 
Verse 15, God is cursing the snake for its evil in the world. God curses it and says, I will put enmity or hatred between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring, and he shall bruise your head, snake, and you, snake, shall bruise his heel. Now, this does set up the larger picture of humanity's wrestle with the snake in our lives and the world, but this is also uh, this like forward glimpse of not just the possibility of human relationships, but the possibility of a human who will come and be struck and strike back. And bruise here, interestingly, doesn't only mean like to get hit and then turn purple. Uh, A more accurate description or a more accurate translation here is to strike or to beat or to crush. These are crushing blows back and forth between snake to man and man to snake. So the curse against the serpent includes a promise of hope for humanity. So from here on out, if you have spent time in the scriptures or grew up in this tradition, every story in the Old Testament you would read would be kind of like hearkening back to this. When's when's the snake crusher going to get here? Is it going to be Cain and Abel? Is it going to be Noah? Is it going to be Abraham? Is it going to be David? Why can no one crush the snake? Where are the, why are the anointed ones of God not doing what we thought they would do? Which leads us to the sense of anticipation in the Old Testament. So the need is, there's real spiritual evil that we need to be liberated from and it needs to be crushed. Who's it going to be? So that's the need. Now we're moving into anticipation. So as the biblical story continues, God's people continue to yearn for rescue. Someone that will free them from the snake, their own evil, and the evil of the empires around them. Now, I'm not going to go over much just because I already uh, need to move on, but much of God's promises throughout the Old Testament scriptures occur. God promises Israel rescue, but he does it in language and context based on real life. He talks about their actual fields and their actual land and their actual children and their actual descendants because he's real. This is, this is prophetic and historical, right? It's not imaginary. He's talking in language about real life. And so because of that, many Jewish people and even today, modern day Jews, continue to understand all the promises of the Old Testament as here, now, tangibility. Now, I I'm not going to get into this. It is here now tangibility, but it is also future and bigger and better than anyone could understand. Here's my point in this. In the Old Testament, prior to Jesus, people understood that God would send an anointed one and he would restore the nation state of Israel, the actual like political regional boundaries of the nation of Israel and would gather the actual people back there, would raise an actual army to defeat the actual enemies. That was how they understood it because God contextualized this using real life language. So we thought that Satan's influence would be destroyed by increasing political power. We thought Satan's influence and our enemies would be destroyed by increasing our military power. We thought it would be increasing our social standards, increasing our laws, increasing our traditions. That was how this was understood for a long time. And so the way that people have understood this is they were anticipating, don't get freaked out when I say this, something you might be familiar with, the progressive utopian state. 
Now, I'm not using that in like a, a left-leaning way, but I'm talking about a real-life thing that we yearning, are yearning for. Every single one of us, left, right, Republican, whatever, we all yearn for a progressed utopian state, somewhere where government is balanced and righteous, where there is no systemic injustice or inequality, where people are fought for and liberated, where peace and actual abundance occur because of right governance and civil participation. This is the thing that we are all yearning for and um, Hebrews of the past anticipated the Christ to fulfill. And this is exactly what our nation is grasping at right now, is it not? What is the path toward utopia? Is it my system? Is it your system? Do we need to make a new system? What is the path that we construct that will progress us past our problems? And this was the thought that Peter, Simon Bar-Jonah, was anticipating and working toward also. Peter had the right idea of the Christ, but he had an old, flawed understanding of that as a renewed nation state. What I'm saying is that the Bible and Jesus teaches we, need, we don't just need a good enough ruler with a good enough system. We don't just need a good enough ruler with a good enough system. That won't cut it. Maybe you've heard this saying before. You might agree with it, you might not. It goes like this. Any form of government would work as long as the people are willing to be governed. Pick any of them. I don't care. Capitalism, great. As long as we can all contribute and be fair and socially equitable, great. You want communism? Great. Let's all not lie and cheat and be corrupt. You, like, what do you want? Any of them would work if we went along with it. If we just stopped cheating and lying and holding back and being stingy, they'd all work. The problem is not the system. The problem is the hearts of men and women influenced by very real spiritual evil in the world. And you might disagree with me there, but I think there's something real. This is why Daniel chapter 7, it's going to be on the screen, I'm just going to reference it, presents such a compelling image of the Mashiach, the Messiah, the Christ. Daniel here is um, kind of this prophetic voice for Yahweh, and he's having this vision. And in this vision, there's multiple monstrous beasts that come out of the ocean and they represent human nations that have been infected and corrupted. They've been turned into beasts by the snake's work in the world. And in this vision, these beasts are killed, their dominion is taken away, and one, quote, like a son of man, comes riding on clouds, stands before God, he is given a kingdom, he is given rule over all people, all nations, all languages. And this new kingdom is everlasting. Notice how this harkens back to Genesis. God called human beings and wanted to make them regents, rulers over creation. And we failed. And we've been waiting for someone to sit on that throne again. This is what Daniel's anticipating, is there will be an anointed one, one like the Son of Man, who will sit on that throne and make things right which leads us to Jesus, the Christ. So all that was like a lot of backstory for what is the Christ? Why does it matter? Why do I care? Why, does it, why is it significant that Jesus claims it as his own? So now we're going get, to get into what does Jesus mean when he says, I am the Christ? Does he bring a new spin or a new fulfillment of God's plan? 
Now, now we're going to get into the three important titles. Son of man, son of God, and the Christ. So the Christ, we've already spent a lot of time talking about that. He's here saying, I'm that guy. All of your hopes about the snake crusher, I'm here, that's me. I'm the one who will crush the snake's head. I will remove spiritual evil and its effects in the human heart. And then he says, the son of man, the guy from Daniel, floating on the clouds, taking up a throne underneath God, ruling over creation with an everlasting kingdom. I'm that guy too. I'm fulfilling both of these promises. And then he says, and I'm the son of God. That's me. And there's a really interesting wordplay here. Did you guys notice how he says, blessed are you, Simon, bar Jonah, because you're calling me the son of God. Did anyone pick that up? Bar Jonah means son of Jonah. So he's saying, hey, blessed are you, son of Jonah, for calling me son of God. What he's linguistically doing here is he's saying, hey, you know how you're a whole lot like your dad? You you have the same mannerisms and you look alike and you got the same genetics and you resemble your dad? Me too. You look like Jonah, I look like God. Then, after claiming these three titles, Jesus reveals God's will in a really unique way. He tells his followers to be quiet. He's, can you imagine this? Someone coming up to you with reliability. You trust them. You worship them. And they say, hey, I'm going to put everything right in the world. I'm going to make a new kingdom. I'm going to come and reign. I'm going to destroy evil. But shh, don't tell anyone. Why? Like, Jesus, why? And here, we see that Jesus is continuing to work in the specific plan of God because he knows if he shouted to everyone, hey, I'm here to fix all the problems. I'm here to save Israel. They're all going to ruin it because they think it's a better guy with a better plan. And they're going to put their spin on his plan and they're not gonna let him do what he wants to do. Notice then when he says, I'm gonna go die. And Peter says, no, you're not. Jesus's closest disciples wanted to interfere with Jesus's following out of God's plan, which is why Jesus says, don't tell anyone. Me succeeding doesn't require anyone else's participation. I'm here to do something and I will get it done. And this is Jesus' new revelation of God's will, that his next step is to go to Jerusalem, not to gather a rebellion, not to take over the capital, but to suffer many things from the current religious leaders that are claiming to represent God. His very next step is to be killed and on the third day be raised. Now, as Christians in a post-Christian culture, we kind of take this idea for granted, right? What what has Jesus done for us? Life, death, resurrection. Like, we kind of, we're so used to that, we forget how shocking it is. That moments before, Jesus says, I am the anointed one of God, here to liberate Israel and all of humanity. Oh, and I'm gonna go die. This was not the anticipated trajectory of the anointed one, right? This is the victor. This is the one that we're expecting to be God's righteous and conquering hero. This is the one that's supposed to gather Israel across the nations to triumph over the Romans, to reestablish national boundaries, to reign as a religious 
state. That was people's hope. But it seems that God's plan, or the things of God, to use this passage's language, the things of God are very different. God here is not concerned with a 30 AD conquest of the Middle East. God's eye here is set on a much larger goal. God's eye here is set on fulfilling Genesis 3, the promised human offspring that will take the bite of the snake in order to conquer it and free the hearts of humanity. So Jesus is not here with a better political system. He is here to inaugurate a whole new kingdom, a new kingdom with new wholehearted people, people that are free of the presence of the snake and free of its influence. And somehow, all of that happens by him dying to the enemy's poison. And here I want to point out the difference between retributive justice and restorative justice. Write those down if you don't mind. Retributive justice. Think like retribute and then put an if on it. (laughs) Retributive justice and restorative justice. Ask your neighbor how to spell those. Retributive justice is right and it is fair. It is part of how God operates on the world. Thank goodness. What retributive justice means really simply is you get what's coming to you. You reap what you sow. You're a jerk, you're going to get punched. You murder someone, you're going to get killed. Justice. You, you steal, you go to jail. You get what you pay for. Or you get, you get what's coming to you. There you go. We want that. We need that. This is what the police enforce, right? We need this in the world. It's a good thing, but it's not the only form of justice. God's plan here is displaying the beauty of restorative justice. Justice that provides an alternative to a direct payment for wrongdoing. If retribution is a direct payment, restoration is an alternative, though equally fair. Restorative justice works to restore the original good. So here, in the person of Christ, God is combining these two beautiful systems of right-making in the world. He takes our retribution and provides his restoration. He does pay out what has been deserved, but he also doesn't pay it necessarily to those deserving for the sake of our restoration. So rather than all the sin and evil that we've done in the world being our immediate death and consequence, Jesus comes to die and suffer to receive our retribution to make a path for our restoration. So Christ is not here to condemn the world, but that it would be saved through him. This is the twist of Jesus the Christ. People in the past thought the Christ was going to come and pay everyone back and reinstate the nation of all the righteous people in the world. No one understood how misled that was. So now Christ is coming and saying, it's not what goes into your mouth that defiles you. It's what's in every single human being that defiles you. And I'm here to take that retribution and restore you into the kingdom of God by suffering and dying and on the third day, rising. Now this leads us to our third big section. We've gone through the Christ. What does it mean? Why is it important? How does Jesus put a spin that fulfills it in a way more beautiful and compelling way? And now, 
How does that meet the lives and the hearts of men and women using Peter as an example? So this is where we get Peter's, Simon's nickname of Peter. Simon bar Jonah, Simon son of Jonah, and Peter are the same guys. And here, Simon says, you are the Christ. You are the son of God. And God, Jesus' response is, blessed are you, Simon bar Jonah. God's revealed this to you. You didn't go and figure this out on your own. God's revealed this to you and given you faith. Now, I'm going to name you Rocky. That's a nickname. I'm going to name you Rocky. And on this rock, I'm going to build my church. I'm glad you enjoyed that, Tracy. I'm going to name you Rocky. And on this, on this rock, I will build my church. So clearly, there's a partnership. God revealing Christ, giving faith. Jesus building his church. Peter playing a role. And then Jesus does this interesting thing where he says, I'm going to give you the keys of the kingdom. Well, that's really vague. How do we interpret that? Anything you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Anything you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. So let's talk about that. So after Jesus dies, after he's resurrected for the sake of his people, he has a very specific way he wants to build his church. He says, I will build my church. Hell will not prevail against it. I'm going to build it on you, on this rock. He is planning on building his kingdom through the church. This is really important. That changes everything. We're not just here to to hear a mediocre speaker on stage. We are here as the church, expanding the kingdom of God, building the kingdom of God through the empowerment of Jesus. We are here commissioned into the restored work of imaging God on earth. We are commissioned into the work of love and generosity made in the image of God. So here's God's role. Okay, we're gonna go through what are all the different partnerships here. God's role is revealing Christ and giving faith. That's what this passage teaches us. It does a lot more, but what it tells us is the work begins with God. Any faith you have, the generosity of God the Father. Revealing the Christ, gifting you faith that you did not deserve. It is a gift. It is God's work in partnering with Jesus to teach us about the snake and Jesus the snake crusher. Jesus' work here. So that's God. Here's Jesus. Jesus' work is to build and preserve his church. He says, I will build my church. Gates of hell will not prevail against it. So I'm going to split that. Build, preserve. What does that mean? Build simply means God gives faith, Jesus uses his followers, i.e. Peter, to preach, to welcome the stranger, and to train followers. So this new kingdom grows through the partnership and the empowerment of Jesus giving his followers authority and roles and responsibilities by reinstating our co-regency with God. Preserve uses the language of the gates of hell will not prevail against this church. Now here, this is not um, a superstitious promise that if you're a Christian, nothing bad is ever going to happen in your life because the gates of hell shall not prevail. It almost sounds like Gandalf there. I hadn't thought of that before. Um, It is not just like you'll never experience destruction or division or loss. Human history, the church history shows Christians and Christian bodies regularly experience loss, instruction, and division. But here, the future-looking promise of Jesus is he will not lose a single person that belongs to him, regardless of 
their and your present day circumstances. He will not lose you. You belong to him. He will not let you go no matter what is happening today. And it's showing us that here, Jesus is solving the death problem. Hades, death, will not prevail. He has solved the problem. And I've pulled this up because it's such an interesting um, comparison. Jesus does not preserve us from death through reincarnation, which is just kind of no single death, just a bunch of living over and over. He also doesn't preserve us from death through immortality, which means no death, but just continued life. He's chosen to preserve his church through reincarnation, which is death swallowed up by life. The strike of the snake and the crushing of its head. Let's look at Peter for a second. Jesus will build his church on the rock. Now there's this really interesting debate here because Jesus does this weird thing. He says, you are Peter, the rock. Peter means the rock. On this rock, I will build my church. And so there's this long-going debate and conversation. So is Peter the rock? God's going to build the church on Peter. Now Catholics have interpreted this to say, oh, Peter represents a special role with special authority in the world of over every single Christian on the planet. There's this one person with a special role. And they've turned that into a succession where the, when Peter gave his title to the next person, to the next, per, next person, that one person has a special role in the world. This is what Catholics call the Pope. I think there's a couple popes at this point, depending on which tradition you're part of. And so there's this question. So did God implement a special person to do a special thing? Or is Jesus doing this interesting wordplay where it's Peter's confession It's the rock's confession that he will build the church on. Because it's right after Peter says, you are the Christ, you, Jesus. Not anyone, you, Jesus, are the Christ, the Son of God. And then Jesus says, yeah, I'm going to build my church on that. So is it Peter or is it the confession of Peter? Now, people have argued about this a lot. I'm going to give you my very simple-minded understanding. It seems very reasonable that the answer is yes. Clearly, Jesus values Peter as a man, a specific friend, a specific apostle, a real human being with a specific temperament, and has commissioned him to have a role in his kingdom that no one else can fulfill. If you read the the Acts of the Apostles, which is the book of Acts right after the Gospels, in Acts chapter 2, there's a, a thing called the day of Pentecost. The Spirit of God comes and empowers the early church. And the very first gospel sermon ever preached is through the mouth of who do you think? Peter. Peter is the very first gospel preaching person in history. And 3,000 people joined the church and are saved by Jesus Christ that day. Does Peter matter? Will God use Peter to build his church? Yes. Going back to Matthew 16 though, There's this interesting thing with Peter. Peter says, you're Christ, the son of God. Blessed are you, Peter. Like two sentences later, what does Jesus call Peter? Satan. You're the rock I'm going to build my church on, Satan. Like, (laughs) clearly Peter's not magic. Peter, like, gets it wrong. 
And so clearly here, Peter has a role. And it is the confession of Peter that will build Jesus' church. It's not any Peter. One commentator, I love this. He says, it's not person Peter that Jesus uses to build. It's pointing Peter. When Peter is doing his own thing, he is Satan. He is hindering the work of God in the world. When Peter is pointing to Jesus as the Christ, then Peter has a special role in building the kingdom of God on earth. So, yes, Jesus uses Peter. Yes, it is through Peter's obedience and faithfulness that he does this. What this should caution us then is when we as Christians set our minds on things other than Christ. When we start to preach things other than Christ, the crucified Christ, the resurrected Christ, then it's possible we are opposing God's work in the world. Don't think it means we're kicked out of the kingdom, but it definitely means we're in dangerous waters. Now, what does it mean when Jesus says, I'm entrusting you with the keys of the kingdom of heaven? This directly ties into Peter's confession. Does Peter alone get the keys, whatever those are, or do all of Jesus' people get the keys? Well, like I said, it seems Peter has an important role, but it also seems that Peter is not given some supernatural power that no one else has experienced. Dale Bruner says this, and I think it ties this together. What are the keys? Who gets them? Dale Bruner says this. If the history of the Acts of the Apostles, meaning the book of Acts, if the history of the book of Acts is to be trusted, Peter used these keys. Now, what were the keys in Acts? Preaching the gospel. A lot of us more charismatic folks are like, what? No, that's so boring. Notice this. Jews were ushered into the ecclesia. They were ushered into the church. Later it was Samaritans. Then still later it was Gentiles. They were ushered in by apostles and their followers who proclaimed Jesus as Christ. That is what the responsible preaching of the gospel, which is the administration of the keys, fundamentally is. It is sustained Christ, anointed Christ-centeredness. What Peter has just done with Jesus here, by pointing to him as the Christ, this is the ministry of the keys. Because, notice this, wherever Jesus is pointed to with faith in his ultimacy, their doors swing open to life. Without Christ, the doors of heaven are shut. Through Christ, through the preaching of his name and his ultimacy, who are those doors open to? All the undeserving. Those are some powerful keys. And what does it mean, bind and loose? If we continue to interpret the keys as opening the doors of the kingdom of heaven through the person of Christ, we can understand binding and loosing as being doctrinal. The apostles got, used the keys, the preaching of Christ, to guard the doctrine of the church. As soon as we bring in something that takes away from the center of Christ or preaches something false or offers an alternative way into heaven, it needs to be bound. It needs to be constrained and kicked out because there's only one key. And through what we loose, we open up the kingdom of heaven. We can also understand this disciplinarily, meaning 
within the church, there is the ability, this is going to sound harsh, but bear with me, to ban disobedient believers who have wandered from Christ, rejecting his name, living in willing disobedience to the person of Christ. We need to close off for the sake of clarity and truth who is and who is not faithful to the person of Christ. Not because we earn our way into heaven, but because when we preach something false, we blind and distract and lead people to their graves if we take Jesus' teaching seriously later in the book of Matthew. At one point, Jesus gets mad at the rabbis. Here's why. He says, you bind up heavy loads and you put them on people's backs with all your religiosity and all your moralisms and all your behavioral requirements and all that you're doing is you're closing the doors of heaven in people's faces. Jesus here is saying, that needs to be bound and cut off because there's one door. Here's the keys. Go and preach my name. I am the door to life. This leads us to our conclusion. What is the Christ? Jesus tells us what the Christ is, the suffering, resurrecting servant. What is the partnership between Peter, God, the Christ, and us, the modern day church? Now, one more time. What does it mean that Jesus is the Christ? It means he's a really big deal. My brain sometimes uses the language of a sixth grader. He's a really big deal. If Jesus could do anything for you, this is kind of a genuine question in this moment. If he could do anything for you, like what would it be? It'd be long life, perfect health, a great family, steady stream of income, ease, comfort, pleasure. If he gave you every single desire of your heart, but at the end of your life, the doors of heaven were closed to you, would any of it have mattered? The fact that Jesus is the Christ, the anointed King of God that came to suffer and die, this is the ultimate thing that any, anyone could ever do for you, for all of humanity to crush the snake, to open the doors of the kingdom, mediating between God and man. The ultimate act of Jesus is he's opened wide the doors of the kingdom of heaven to who? You, me, and all the other, according to 1 Timothy, insolent opponents of God. This means to all the broken people we know. This means to all the gross people we know, to all the unlovely people, to every single undeserving person, even the ones that look pretty but are gross on the inside, even the ones that we look at and call deviant, they are not too far gone because of the ultimate work of the Christ. Are we called to repentance and faithfulness? Yeah. Is that really confusing for all of us? Yeah. Am I going to die an unworthy sinner? Yeah. Are the doors of heaven open to me based on my righteousness? No. The doors of heaven, the keys have been unlocked through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So now I, an unworthy, deviant, insolent opponent of God, can walk every single day knowing I am in the kingdom through the man, Jesus Christ.
the crazy part of all this, and I'm pointing this out, I've, I've pointed it to my life, but I want to point it out to your life so you have a chance to receive this. The crazy part of all of this gospel good news is it is free before you get your act together. Before. You woke up this morning living in addiction and despair and shame. That door is wide open because of the ultimate work of Jesus. Will he restore you? Will he heal you in the context of his church and his love and his grace? Yes. Are we pursuing righteousness? Yes. But there is no fence to the kingdom of God if you are walking in the path of Christ. And shame on me as a church leader if I put a fence in front of you rather than pointing you to Christ. Would you pray with me? Jesus, the Christ. Uh, Lord, thank you for the privilege of this passage and changing the way I use that word. The Christ. This is not a cuss word. This is not a last name. This is a title, a role, a promise that you have fulfilled. Lord, as you continue to build your church, to equip your saints to walk in righteousness and faith and belief, to um, be commissioned into our world, to point to you, not to all the right Christian behaviors, but to point to you, the Christ, the anointed one who suffered and died and was raised to open wide the doors of the kingdom of heaven. Would you equip us with your spirit? Would you teach us how to use the keys well to open and usher people into your kingdom to be transformed? We love you. Amen.